Lauren Vaughn and the Metabolic Studio offers the Explorers Club to share meaningful journeys, encounters, and projects in an intimate setting at the Metabolic Studio. Session 28, September 22nd, 2016, features Ava Ku, co-founder of the Collaborative for Urban Agroecology, presenting her work on soil testing and phytoremediation. Let's tune in, connect, and listen. Let's give a warm welcome to Ava Ku and Andrew Douglas for their number 28 Explorers Club presentation today. It's great to see so many of you guys that we haven't seen in years. uh, So many familiar faces when you guys used to attend Farm Lab Salon here. And uh, Explorers Club is a little similar like the salons we used to have at Farm Lab. Um, Explorers Club is dedicated to our investigations happening at the moon, which is our property across the river. And today's topic is about contamination of urban soils. Um, that, And it should be a high concern to all residents in Los Angeles. A variety of heavy metals and hydrocarbons are common contaminants in urban soils due to historic leaded gasoline and industrial land use that continues to affect human health and air quality, whether you know it about it or not. We'll all learn more about Um, how we plan to address and remediate soil contamination at the moon by using x-ray fluorescent technology and other soil testing methods to map and track soil contamination levels as well as our phytoremediation plan to extract known contaminants from the soil naturally using low-cost plants accessible to all communities. Are you all wondering what the moon is? If so, the moon is a property we acquired early 2015 on the other side of the river, which we used, which used to be a tow yard and a car auction lot. Lauren Bond's vision was to undevelop the site. One of our first actions was to remove the asphalt from six 60-foot uh, in diameter circles, test the soil, and allow the seeds to sprout after almost a century of dormancy. And Andrew and Ava will begin our presentation. Let's give them a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Andrew Douglas, uh, and that's Ava. And so we are Koala. We're the Collaborative for Urban Agroecology Los Angeles. So it's a fun acronym. Um, Koala, uh, a little bit about Koala and what we do. Um, Essentially, there's a lot of, in the nonprofit sector in LA, there's quite a bit of... um, Occasionally, you'll see some redundancy and functionality, and then you'll also see some functions that aren't being addressed. And so the concept of koala emerged from these perennial conversations that always seem to pop up, and maybe I'm sure a lot, many of you here have been engaged in some of these conversations where it's you know, um, land use issues, where it's like, okay, well, where are we going to do this? Where's the land? And then, well, what if the land is bad? And um, so this kept coming up and kept coming up, And, of course, now as we see this tension between um, housing issues and housing entities and uh, open space and park space and that type of thing, we're really fighting for a more equitable future where we're not choosing between affordable housing or open spaces or food access. Um, All of them are doable, but it will take that type of 
tension, if you will, of housing advocates fighting for the most equitable form of housing they can get. That's going to take urban growers to fight for the most environmentally and ecologically sound um, places and venues to grow food and then to look towards how to um, assure that those distribution streams are in the areas of greatest need and that all the most important stakeholders, which are the uh, four million angels of LA, are served on, um, an, even, on an even basis. And so um, in these meetings, we would talk about the soil quality. Soil quality would come up a lot. And of course, um, as is the case with the Jordan Downs project, where we are part of a coalition, it's a great example where, you know, on a federal level, they'll say, okay, well, where do we put the new uh, low-income housing? And unfortunately, more times than not, uh, it'll end up, as is the case in Jordan Downs, it'll be a, a former steel smelting plant. You know, and they'll say, well, where can we grow food? And it's a former rail yard. You know, that type of thing. So this type of, like, you know, these walls we kept hitting, we were like, okay, so let's form a collaborative where we talk about what we affectionately refer to as the elephant parade, where it's, okay, let's talk about these issues and let's actually start chalking them off. And so uh, we started getting to soil testing. And uh, Ava has a plant science degree uh, from Cornell, and, and she's going to talk about all that fun stuff in a minute. And so we essentially started so testing soil, and we realized that a lot of this is really winnable. Um, there's a lot of these sites, like Jordan Downs, for example, uh, where the, there's lead particulates um, from the steel smelting plant. And, um, and so that, that's a good example because that's, people have known about that for over 10 years now. But if they had been growing the right things there to phytoremediate it, it would have been, the soil would have been healed three or four years ago. So it's an example of like, okay, let's just get up and do it. So that's essentially what Koala does in terms of citizen science and science testing. Now, on the other hand, the other tool that we wield is uh, a conduit for interconnectivity between growers throughout the region. Because what we kept seeing was we'd have growers in Altadena who were doing something similar or having similar challenges as growers in maybe Long Beach do. And so we wanted to basically serve as an infrastructure for interconnectivity between all these nonprofits. Um, as is sometimes the case, they're just not talking to each other a lot. And so um, with that, the idea would be that we create uh, a sum which is greater than, than uh, or a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts, and in doing so, increase the productivity, the biodiversity, and the equitability of hyper-localized food endeavors throughout the region. So um, we have begun uh, looking at the moon as a site, and it's just a fantastic site. And with that, I'll be sort of chiming in uh, intermittently, but I'll hand it over to yeah. Ava. So thank you so much for coming out. Thank you, Lauren, and thank you, Metabolic. This is yeah. really fun. Really great. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for the intro. Um, so we're here to talk about the moon. Um, so let's zoom out a little bit first. And so let's take a look at Los Angeles. When I saw this flyover map of LA, I was a little, I mean, a little sad because you can see how the urban environment has affected pretty much the entire region of Los Angeles. And so there are so many different um, industries going around and uh, cars and traffic, um, commerce, all these things add to the pollution, um, leaded gasoline 
is a source of lead uh, that went on until the 70s. And we're dealing with the after effects today. And many of these areas are still contaminated. Um, and Andrew mentioned that we were doing soil tests. And every single soil test that we have done has come back with some level of heavy metal contamination. Um, so it's, uh, it's a big issue. So this was the moon site uh, before. It was a, it is what it is today. And so when looking at a site, we always want to think about the land history of a site. And so this piece of property has gone through so many different changes uh, throughout the years from being um, a tow yard to um, a parking lot to a pumpkin patch where people are selling pumpkins for uh, Halloween. Um, and so here's what it looks like, maybe not today, but pretty recently. Um, and so we can see that the circles are uh, cut out. And, yep, so those are the circles over there. And so um, let's look at the site. So there's an average pH of about 7.65 on the site. It's a little high. Um, the salinity uh, from salts from um, either the water or um, other commercial activity can contribute to the salt salinity levels. Um, the excess metals of concern that were found in the soil, t soil tests taken uh, were lead, zinc, and copper. Um, lead is really the one that uh, affects human health. Uh, zinc and copper uh, more so affect uh, the growth of plants. Um, and the uh, total petroleum hydrocarbons present in levels above worker, EPA worker exposure recommendations um, and the sources of the hydrocarbons are from gasoline, diesel, and motor oil. And uh, the phytoremediation ability of the current plants growing on the site is about low to moderate. And those were, um, was in a plant survey that we'll, we'll see in a little bit. Um, so let's take a look at the levels. So we got C1 over here. And there's, a, there's been a range. So there's ranges uh, for each of these. And so for this one's not too bad, 30.3 uh, to 80.3 parts per million. Um, 80 is the uh, residential action level um, by the <laughs> California Healthy uh, Standards, Health Standards, yeah. Um, and for C2 and C6, uh, no data was collected because uh, those were dug up later. Um, oh man, the red is a little hard to see. But in C3, we had a lead level of uh, a high of 99.84 um, parts per million. And so that's above the action level for uh, residential. And um, for the total um, petroleum hydrocarbons, we see that one of the samples uh, had 650 uh, parts per million or milligrams per kilogram. And so what they say worker exposure is um, the limit should be 500 um, parts per million. 
order of milligrams per kilogram. So it's a little high. It's, it's high there. Um, C4, not as bad. But you still have a lot of the, um, the total petroleum hydrocarbons um, on C4. And on C5, we see that there is a high of 140 parts per million in one of the soil tests. Um, so in looking at this, the composite status of these different um, sites, we can get a baseline for what our experiments can look like and where we're starting from. So um, mapping contamination is a big focus of this project. And so here's a little visualization. Um, so basically the methods to, to map it, we will be using uh, x-ray fluorescence. And so what x-ray fluorescence is, is there's this handheld gun that you can use to point at a material and it will tell you the, um, pretty much the composition of the material. So it'll tell you most metals. It won't tell you every element, but it will measure most of them. Um, and that is by using an x-ray, and it measures the uh, wavelengths. Um, ultraviolet fluorescence is a way that, to measure the uh, total petroleum hydrocarbons in the soil. And so, pretty, so what hydrocarbons do is they fluoresce under ultraviolet light. And so by measuring um, the fluorescence, we can get a level of um, the total petroleum hydrocarbons. And to map it all, we'll be using um, Krieging interpolation in ArcGIS, is a GIS software. And that's how we will be able to get the contour heat maps of um, the circles by uh, mapping a grid and imputing, uh, computing those values to um, get that gradient that we see. So we can see highs and lows um, at, the, at the site when we uh, test this way. Oh, and Ava, I'm sorry, real yep. quick, would you mind going back to the previous one real quick where it lists all the, the, the metals and things that are, that are in there? Is that possible? Uh, oh, the, this one? Uh, yeah, just where it listed. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Because I, I just wanted to see real quick. Um, so, or, so when we look at lead, zinc, and copper, so when you think, when you consider the site being, and this is where CSI kind of comes into it, and it's kind of fun because you start actually having to deconstruct what the, what the site's history was. And sometimes it's very elusive. Like the planning documents for this site, for example, there's hundreds of them. Any, any, at, at one point, somebody uh, in the 80s wanted to do a grocery store there. And at some point, so it's by going through those and then cross-referencing what's what. If it was just a parking lot, it'd be pretty simple. Um, and there wouldn't be as much because a parking lot is actually capped and it's capped above. But when you consider a salvage yard and you consider that maybe there are old cars sitting there and then they're collecting rust and there's no tarp on them, which is a violation, by the way, of environmental standards. Um, and then suddenly a big rain comes through and washes all that stuff around. So that's sort of how things migrate. So a lot of this we're dealing with um, migration. So they're, they're, it's the nature of how different 
um, particulates migrate into one or another and how they migrate uh, unilaterally as well. Um, and some can be absorbed, some can only be condensed, and Ava will go into that a little bit more. But I, I also yeah. wanted to see if there were any questions so far as well. Does anybody know what, what the x-ray, when we talk about x-ray, what that might entail? I have a question. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, depending on the material, um, the so it sends an X-ray. So depending on the, the material that you're um, analyzing, it'll have a different depth. So uh, say say you could, uh, if I did an X-ray through this tape uh, on the table, it would actually shoot through the table. In the circles, right. So it, the way that we would sample in the circles is that we would actually dig the physical samples, put them in a bag, okay. sieve them um, so they're uniform. Our is that um, 99% of our digging mm -hmm. is into different levels of lantern. Mm -hmm. So there isn't anything that we can connect with which represents the ground. It's right. rather all important grounds. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the issues that you have is once you uncover the top layer, um, there's variable uh, things that happen, including late seeds that might be very deep down that need to bite the sunlight. But, so one of the things that's an issue is all of the circles are right now dug to different depths, and we're trying to test them all. So I was wondering if those X-ray analyticals are organized to help you Right. Right, it is a lot of work. And the x rays cannot travel too far down into okay. the soil. So it'll only be like a foot, maybe, um, because of all the different materials that's in soil, um, and it does block it. So uh, unfortunately, um, it has to be like a collected sample that we. Um, prepare to be uh, analyzed. And there is a layer of efficiency there, however, with the x-ray gun because, um, and it looks like if you guys have ever seen like a speed trap like a, with cops when they have their radar guns or, you know, when they're tracking baseball, that's sort of what it looks like. But um, traditionally, though, we dig it up and then send it off, the sample off to be uh, tested and then wait for that time to come back. And so with the x-ray gun, it, there is that element of work that's still involved of bringing it up, but then once it's up, it can be done um, numerous times and, you know, as many samples in, say, a day as, as one wants, as yeah. opposed to spending all day working on maybe just five or ten or a dozen samples yeah. and so then shipping them So you can take many more samples. And you can also get a, a qualitative analysis not ex um, by shooting directly on the ground. Um, it won't get you the uh, most accurate results, but it will give you an idea of um, just the general situation. Yeah. Oh. Uh, are there any health risks involved? Um, 
Yes. Well, there's not really health risks, but I did have to get uh, radiation safety certified in, or, in order to use an XRF gun. Um, just because you have to know not to, you know, shoot yourself. Um, but uh, the, the danger of an XRF gun is, um, you know, to get a sunburn, um, you know, like that level of, da- of skin damage from an XRF gun, you would have to leave it on on your skin for eight minutes. So, um, and also you have to wear a, uh, something that they call a dosimeter, and so it's like a ring or a, a watch that you would, you would use, um, uh, that you would wear while you're taking the samples, and you would send it back to the lab to make sure that you haven't um, been exposed unduly to too many, um, uh, too much radiation. And if you shouldn't have, if you send it back, you shouldn't have any um, radiation detected on the dosimeter if you're using the XRF gun uh, correctly. So it is pretty safe, but you know you have to still know to be safe. Yeah. I think we had a question here too. Yeah. So uh, Lauren's question about you know using the gun on the site when there's like. Basically, sounds like it's like not really soil, or it's like random materials <laughs> or landfill. Uh, makes makes us wonder. Well, the gun is for it to be used to test soil specifically, or it can be t- um, you can test other organic uh, materials. The, uh, XRF guns are used in a wide variety of industries, from um, uh, like people who work in uh, scrap metal yards to identify um, different kinds of metals that they, they receive um, uh, or testing for lead in, uh, on p- walls and paint um, as well as uh, like for um, safety inspections for like toys. Um, so yeah, and other precious metals recovery. Yeah, yeah, so you can tell how much gold is in your soil. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, do we have any more? Another question. Yep. How did you geo-reference the um, the samples? Did you have did you GPS every one, or is it? Um. So the way that the XRF gun ha- it has a built-in GPS. Oh, wow. So it will locate the coordinates of where you're um, shooting it. Um, if we're doing it out in the field. And then there's software. Yeah. As well that. It basically plug it in and yeah, it just so, maps it. So we'll be using ArcGIS, which is a GIS program, and uh, you could input that data in order to uh, get your points organized and and, show, and displayed on a map. All right. So here's our plan. Uh, one, map the initial uh, soil metals of concern in uh, total petroleum hydrocarbons. So that'll be collecting the data and then mapping it so we have an idea of what's going on. Um, two, uh, reduce the soil metal content, total petroleum hydrocarbons, um, and salinity via free phytoremediation and irrigation on required circles. Uh, map the progress of soil samples before and after harvest, um, as well as testing the uh, tissue of the plants, as well to um, determine what they've accumulated. Um, make compost. Uh, return organic matter back to the soil when possible to reduce pH and increase soil mass Um, and to further explore closed loop recycling methods of heavy metals and plants via composting and incineration. So 
Um, currently, the way that plants are used in fighter, uh, as fighter remediation, fighter remediators, um, when they're used today, um, what they'll do is they'll harvest all the plants and then they'll burn them um, because it's uh, technically hazardous waste and you're not supposed to just throw them out anywhere. Um, but the way that they've been able to recover metals from those plants is through um, incineration. Um, and so imagine burning all of the biomass uh, that we would need to basically suck up um, the metals out of the soil to an acceptable level, and that's a lot. So what we're looking into is how do we reduce that mass? And the best way to reduce the mass of plants is to compost it, right? So um, we're going to look into to making it as small as possible and then see how we can possibly recover those metals um, after we've uh, used the plants to suck them up. And then a quick fun, fun fact, which is currently how this type of remediation is done in L.A. is, and you can't make this stuff up, uh, it's trucked to Arizona, where yes. it's dropped off at the border. So there's a, there's a landfill in Arizona where they don't mind contaminated soils, and that's right now. So right. the footprint involved with all that is, is pretty staggering, but when there is a yeah. site in L.A. and they have fill that is contaminated, like is the, as is the case in, in Watts or a lot of these post-industrialized areas, that's what they do. They load up the trucks and they do one truck a day. And so they load up the truck all day and then they go and come right. back. And, everything. and So it's just so a dance the, of like who has lower environmental regulations. Um, and that's not what we want to do. Yeah. And, this, and the soil is never healed in that process. It's yeah. just dumped it's just on somebody else's you know, yeah. front porch. Ava, I have a question. Um, are you guys using plants like uh, parsley and celeries and uh, I'm cilantro? Get, I'm going to get into the to, plants. Oh, okay, for chelating the soil. Um, I'm going to get into to the okay. different plants that we're using. Thank you. All right. So, what's phytoremediation? We've been talking about it, but you know, how does it work? What is it? So there's a bunch of different ways that plants can um, phytoremediate, and so phyto means plant, remediation means to heal. And so there's a bunch of different mechanisms by which uh, plants do this. And so there's uh, the top one, top right, phytovolatilization. Um, that happens when uh, there is a metal like mercury, which can actually vaporize. Um, and go into the air once it's in a smaller state. And so th what phytovolatization is, is when a plant will um, pretty much uh, transpire that, uh, that contaminant. Um, phytodegradation is when it absorbs in a contaminant and then it breaks it down within its tissue into a different form than it was originally absorbed in. Um, uh, phytosimulation is when it breaks it down at the root zone. So in the soil, it doesn't absorb it, but just by the interactions between the roots and the soil and all the microbial activity that's happening, um, those contaminants are broken down. So like hydrocarbons would be um, pretty much broken down in, in, in that kind of way. Uh, phytodegradation, uh, similar. It absorbs it at the same time and breaks it down. Phytostabilization is when the contaminants will be bound um, in the soil 
by the interactions between the plant roots. And so it'll be a more unusable form that's not um, as dangerous. Um, and phytoextraction, which is the big method that we're going to be using, is where the plant itself absorbs the contaminant like lead or, any, or some other heavy metals um, are extracted and, that, and it stores it in the root tissue, uh, the stems and the leaves of the plant. Okay, any questions on that? Were you? Okay. So we took a look at the current um, vegetation that was planted at the moon, or that was just there. I think these are mostly weeds and uh, wild plants that came up. And we see that there's some, um, some plants definitely absorb a lot more uh, metals um, than others. So if we look at uh, mustard root, the root of the mustard, um, we can see, I wish I had a laser pointer, but um, it's like kind of in the middle. And it says um, that it's a, a thousand and sixty-three parts per million of aluminum in the root of the mustard compared to um, the uh, leaves of the mustard where it's uh, 363 parts per million. So we're seeing that most of, the content, most of these metals is actually stored in the roots of these plants. Um, and, but we don't see any of these really remediating any lead, which is the, the metal of concern on the site. Um, we have some high zinc, and it looks like nightshade can suck a little bit of that out. Yellow. The yellow? Oh, great, thank you. Um, and uh, we also see that there's also a very high level of vanadium that every plant, so I actually have a couple of these, so these are different ones. They all have accumulated uh, vanadium, and so vanadium is an element that is um, found in gasoline, diesel, and motor oil. And so with the site being a former tow lot, we can see that we ha we, the plants are taking up an excess of these metals, and vanadium is one that is very available in the soil to plants and is readily uptaken by um, almost every plant. Um, and so one of the interesting ones that we saw was the tobacco tree root um, actually absorbed 75.47 uh, parts per million of lead, um, which is the highest out of all of the uh, plants' tissues taken, samples taken. And a high level for a plant would be like 35, over 35 parts per million. So we see it, you know, almost, almost double. Um, but we wanna, but tobacco tree is not really a native, and so we wanna explore different plants that um, are native and can also have these different phytoremediative properties. So here's a selection of uh, native phytoremediators, or potential ones. I say potential because um, these haven't officially been studied for their properties, but based on their plant families, um, some of them have been studied as remediators. 
Um, but the purpose of our study would be to measure the differences and find out what's going on. So we got some pictures. So for, for lead, we got the honey locust, desert candle, Indian tobacco, um, total petroleum hydrocarbons. We got California meadow barley, California sagebrush, black cottonwood, Fremont cottonwood, um, California sunflower for zinc, uh, for copper, uh, telegraph weed, mallow, and California sunflower for zinc, and uh, California meadow barley for salts. So let's, let's take a look. So here's some pictures. I should have made these words bigger. So this is the honey locust. It's a nice tree. Um, I think it's a great street tree as well. Um, not a lot of leaf litter and it's beautiful. Uh, a lot of uh, food for animals as well. Um, so finding a mustard that was native was a bit of a, a challenge, but I think that the desert candle is one that's commercially available and I think is also very beautiful um, to grow and, and it has a large stem um, to accumulate biomass. It can be mass planted. So let's see what it does. Because um, uh, brassicas, brassicaceae, that family, which is like cabbages, kale, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, mustards, um, those, that family has been noted for their um, hyperaccumulator value. What a hyperaccumulator does is that it accumulates higher levels of whatever that contaminant is um, than other plants normally do. So uh, mustards have been studied intensively as uh, remediators and different, different species of mustard have been uh, studied and most of them do absorb something. So I think that we should see what um, the desert candle does. Um, Indian tobacco is another native um, that, uh, to the tobacco plant, since the tree tobacco was one that had the highest um, uh, lead content Let's, let's try the native tobacco and see how that one does. Um, for uh, hydrocarbons, California sagebrush, very common California native plant, beautiful. Um, uh, the black cottonwood and the Fremont cottonwood are both um, native uh, cottonwood species um, that uh, cottonwoods are known uh, and, and used widely as uh, fighter mediators for um, petroleum cleanups. So let's see what our natives can do. And so for zinc and copper, we have a California sunflower, um, telegraph weed for zinc, and um, California meadow, meadow barley, uh, which is a grass. Uh, for hydrocarbons and salts. So the barley's a very salt tolerant plant and um, the uh, site is very salty, so I think it'll do well there. And this is a larger list of uh, recommended plant native plants that may not necessarily be um, super phytoremediators, but Plant diversity and having a good ecosystem is as important, in my opinion, um, as having clean soil. And so I've also listed some invasive species as well. 
um, that are very common in uh, the Los Angeles area, and I've seen some of these on the site, so, yeah. And, yeah, so here's our timeline. Our data collection and growing schedule. Uh, month one to four will be the initial soil map and first seeding. Uh, months five through eight, first harvest, second soil map, and second seeding. Uh, months nine through 12, second harvest, third soil map, and third seeding. Uh, month 13 through 16, third harvest, fourth soil map. And uh, 16 to 18, we'll have a final report. And uh, for ongoing, we want to do programming, outreach, uh, website build out, and have status updates, and virtualize our data. So we want to be able to have people who do not know anything be able to, you know, see our heat maps and understand what's going on. Yeah. yeah, and I think you can see, too, here where you have this intersection of doing something that's very old school, which is healing soil and growing soil and dealing with organic matter. But we're addressing it. There are very high-tech ways of resolving some of these, these challenges. And so what's interesting, what comes to mind quite often when we endeavor upon this type of work, which is there's a lot of buzz around um, the intersection of tech and food. But unfortunately... A lot of times, it's very top-heavy in GMOs and that type of quote-unquote tech. It's not this type of tech. It's not right. like using an x-ray gun to do in one day what used to take a week minimum to do before. And it's about using you know, mobile web platforms to link the challenges of production and consumption to um, make a, a sprawling place like L.A. a much closer place for the production hubs and the consumption. Um, and then also this is a really interesting, uh, uh, there's something that's really interesting about the site, which is usually you'll, you'll get maybe one thing will be there. It'll be like just lead or just copper or just depleted uranium. Um, but uh, thank you if anybody laughed at that. But, um, but, but occasionally um, you'll have a site where there are a couple things. And so it's really interesting because there is one circle where it's high in in um, one thing and then another circle where it's high in another. And so that opportunity is very interesting to do two different you know, types of organic matter to heal soil that is contaminated but in very different fashions. And then of course, a website is right up in there with that, how does technology intersect with this type of work? Well, you know, traditionally this type of thing would go into a report that would take a year and a half or two years to read, and then that would need to be printed, and then that would have to be distributed, and then we'd have to work the circuit and go around, you know, but we can do all that with a website, and it can be done in real time, and so with this type of opportunity and that type of technology, it's really interesting to um, cast that broad of a net as far as buy-in and as far as stakeholdership and interest, and um, on that note also, I'd refer all of you to visit our website, which is uh, koala at nationbuilder.com and actually there's a massive resource trove there that's like it's all peer-reviewed reports and it covers everything from biodiversity to biodiversity to agroecology to remediation and all that stuff and I know some of you have used that recently, so that's good and helpful. Right. And and so just wanted to make those notes. And so. a big reason for us choosing some of the, these native plants is also to use plants that are available to people in the community 
and not to make it something like a you know genetically like GMOs where you have to buy a patent. Um, clean soils should be a right for people, in my opinion. So <laughs> let's uh, yeah get Maybe it going, some, right? Some questions here. Yeah. Do you guys use uh, micro-remediation using, like, mushroom spores, like, uh, like, just mycological inoculations at all, or is it just mainly plants? Um, we can. I have not... My, experience, my personal experience is more in the plant sciences side of, of this, so I'm not sure if we're going to include that in our scope, but definitely inoculating soil to, to make the soil as good as possible to um, facilitate any remediation I think is worthwhile and perhaps we could explore that on, like because there are symbiotic relationships between um, mycorrhizae and plants uh, that I think should be further explored. And there may be an opportunity there in the composting of it as well because you know you have these hyper accelerators that will absorb the lead but then the lead's in the plant matter. So then what do you do with the plant matter? Well, the yeah, composting, we can hopefully reduce it, reduce it, and then that's where, you know, uh, mycology is very interesting, which is, you know, those dark, wet places of compost. So your plant schedule was, or your growing schedule is only going to last about 18 months or 16 months, and I wanted to see also if you were only going to be using seeds and how densely you were going to be planting, and like, what's the germination rate on a lot of those seeds? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously that's gonna cut right. into your growth so time. Each yeah. one will be different. So if we're planting the trees, then the harvesting schedule will be different. So it was more of a general um, schedule to just make sure that every four months that we are tracking what is happening. Um, some of the plants will grow faster, like the barley, um, and will be able to be harvested. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So yes, there there will be different um, per circle. Um, so I know that uh, composting will sequester heavy metals and pollutants, and it's been used to remediate toxic soils. So I'm wondering if you were planning on tracking, you know, whether composting of these phytoremediation plants would like reduce the overall like heavy metal pollutant load that was in, in those plants to begin with? Yes, we will be testing that, the compost uh, for those heavy metal loads. I expect that they will stay the same um, or, and get more concentrated as uh, the compost reduces in mass um, because you can't really, uh, lead, for example, does not just you know, go away. Um, it's something that doesn't really move and um, so, yeah. As of February 2016, we have removed all of the invasive species and we have um, kept everything on site, which those of you that will go on our tour will see. We have a sacrificial compost area where we are composting a lot of those uh, contaminated uh, species and we were hoping to work with Ava and hoping to test that compost February 2017. Yes. So, so we'll be testing the compost. <laughs> Any other questions? 
So you were saying that uh, the tree tobacco had a large um, uptake of lead. Mm -hmm. Where the tree tobacco is uh, a invasive, mm -hmm. um, are there other uh, native plants that would take up the lead in those levels? Um, there are. There haven't really been studies done on native plants and their lead uptake levels. So this will we'll find out in this experiment. Um, and so that's why I chose another native tobacco plant um, to study um, because tobacco, the tobacco species is one that accumulates metals, then it's more likely that a similar uh, species will too. And, and that's, that's not uncommon, that type of, you know, I, I just always call them elephants. I shouldn't just call them that, but, but it's kind of vague. But in essence, a lot of these problems have persisted because people never address them. They sort of are like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. So there's actually a lot of, like, fascinating research out there. I mean, there's research papers that prove that you can grow lavender on a site and it will remediate lead and you can convert that lavender into lavender oil, which is to say you can make turn it into a product, uh, you know, um, and none of it trans is transmitted along with the lavender oil. Now, are the people who did that report doing it? No. It's just, you know, and that's what's interesting, and that is sort of part of, partly due to, to a larger problem, which is higher education institutions in America and the way they're sort of driven, where their students are constantly sort of dealing with abstractions, and there's nothing really community-based that's in it, and they never take on the environmental inequities. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, some of this stuff is hard to find sometimes, and that's when we sort of engage and say, all right, yeah. we'll do it. And that's why um, I think that citizen science and having um, science opportunities uh, for kids and other people um, to engage in this kind of work, um, to either learn about phytoremediation, practice it at their own home, um, I think that it's something that anyone can do. Anyone can plant a seed. Um, so I think that we just should uh, do the first one, right? So. And there's a lot to build on this, too, with the Slauson Mobility Quarter, where they're digging up the train tracks, and they're doing a massive mm -hmm. quarter to the river. There's all sorts of stuff, of course, with the river you know, revitalization. And so we're working with the county as well with um, basically troubleshooting on best practices and what they could consider implementing as far as a phytoremediation policy that would save them literally you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, and uh, it would be really great for the community to know, too. Do we have any outreach programs for children uh, for kids? Um, right now, do we 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 have developed um, outreach programming um, and through uh, I guess do you want to build that one? Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, we, we actually yeah we're in the middle of um, well because uh, yes absolutely so we're yeah. in the middle of actually doing that and working on because we're working on a couple of big projects. Um, we're childcare. I mean, we realize that this is like a kit of parts, right? You want to have like a, a localized food hub that is a center for interconnectivity between consumers and distributors and growers. But then also, you can't just have that without considering childcare. And so that's something yeah. that Ava brought up a, what, about a month or two ago. And so then we started really looking. 
you know, I don't have kids, so I gotta, it takes somebody to say something like that for me to, and it's like, oh yeah, duh, like, yeah, childcare, that makes a lot of sense. We should engage yeah. kids. And, th- and then um, to bring it back to like the citizen science opportunity, uh, for a project like this, um, whenever you're growing natives or making a, an ecosystem happen, there's going to be an influx of wildlife that comes in. So whether it's collecting insects um, and identifying them um, with the kids or any other groups, um, I think that would be a great additional uh, investigation to do on these sites just to see what insects are coming back. And I don't know if anyone's heard about maybe last year or a year or two ago where over, um, I think it was like a, over 200 new species of insects were found by backyard entomologists uh, from the Natural History Museum. And that's in LA just from, you know, swiping nets in people's backyards. So um, we could discover new species uh, if we look. Um, that's just that's just the nature of, of uh, insects and the speciation that we have and how little uh, work is really um, going on in these fields. So, yeah, I, I encourage people to um, engage and, uh, yeah, come out and love to have pr- programming um, geared towards uh, citizen science work that people can um, engage in. Um, just get over there first. Yeah, sorry. I find this fascinating. I mean, I hope bioremediation is the answer to a lot of what we're going to be dealing with in the near future, but um, I'm a master gardener, and we always think of how the soil grows the plant, mm-hmm. and, and the biology in the soil, you know, the microbial community is right. such a, a connection, and it would seem mm-hmm. like even looking at your remediation values for the different plants, it would seem to be different in different soil settings, its capacity yes. to extract. So how do you... Like, I would encourage you to look at, you know, the appropriate inoculants as well as, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, plants and and look at them as combinations. It's really weird thinking of the unrelated to the microorganisms in the the soil. Yeah, there's so so many different ways in which uh, plants and soil and uh, microbial activity, fungal activity, bacterial, um, all these different things interact within the, the soil biosphere. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's difficult to tell, um, and you ha- will have will have to determine you know the soil types and the soil composition. But um, you know, at the end of the day, what I want to find is are, are plants that will take up uh, at least a higher than normal uh, rate of contaminants and break them down at a higher than normal rate and to um, get people to do it in their backyards, in their front yards, in their neighborhoods, their parks, um, all these places that, you know, need uh, one green cover, um, need the uh, ecosystems, need to have better environments. And, you know, I think that any way to get it done, we should do it. I had a question, yeah. How is the site going to be irrigated? Um, The site will be irrigated, I believe, with uh, water that is um, harvested from the water wheel, right? And, yeah, Jaime can answer that. So for the last year, we've been running an experiment on the moon, which is um, 
an artificial wetland to test being able to treat water from the LA River um, in order to irrigate the site. And that was in the context of the water wheel project that is going to be going into the ground um, hopefully early next year on this site and partially sort of in this building. And so what we found is that we, and there was a, uh, another um, Explorers Club a few weeks back that kind of explained um, that process and that testing. And um, we're able to clean the water pretty well with a limited number of bins with native plants and um, different types of media, whether it's gravel or coconut coir or clay pellets. So we have that um, system on site now, but we've stopped harvesting water from the river and we've switched over to rainwater. And so we installed a rainwater catchment system before last um, rainy season and collected, let's see, 18 times 5,000. So that's 90,000 90, gallons of rainwater and are slowly putting that through the wetland at about 5,000 gallons per week. And that's what we're irrigating the site with currently. Uh, it's not enough water to irrigate all the circles. We're, we're limited the irrigation currently to one circle, which is growing mule fat, um, which is a plant that would be interesting to test as far as its um, remedial properties as well. Uh, as soon as we get more rain, which hopefully will happen before we run out of water, um, we'll be able to irrigate a lot more circles during the rainy season, um, but not into the next dry season, and we'll have to figure out a new way to either harvest water from the river again, which was a bit of a costly process because we had to actually send a truck down to the river to pick up the water and bring it and put it into one of our tanks. It'd be preferable to be able to put a tiny little water wheel into the river that would just pump the water up, um, but that's an Army Corps of Engineers issue. Yeah. So um, so we have that, uh, and during the... Um, the walkthrough, you guys will get to see that project as well. And the uh, long-term plan is that uh, uh, the water uh, from the water wheel on this site will be carried in a pipe across the Spring Street Bridge to uh, two city parks, Albion and um, uh, Downey Rack and Pool. Um, but we intend and hope to carry that piping system back up to the moon so that long-term uh, that site will have access to the water from the water. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. <laughs> yeah. Please check out our website. Feel free to email me or Andrew with uh, any more questions. Get into contact with us. Join the collaborative. We are having events. Uh, we're going to have a next uh, Urban Agriculture Summit next year. So, um, yeah, come hang out. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the latest Explorers Club session. For more information, please visit metabolicstudio.org. And thank you.